So, hey guys, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to see you today. And uh, if you haven't already, take out your message notes. And uh, we're going to dive right into this morning's message. It's hard to believe that it's Christmas time, but it is. Are you ready for it? Samson, you're ready. I can tell. And uh, that red sweater that you bought for Leanne looks great. You guys, because I'm sure you picked them out, right? You, okay. All right. Just make it. I know it wasn't Leanne. It had to be. Uh, anyway, uh, it's almost Christmas. I don't know if you're ready or not. I'm semi-ready. Um, we're going to do some things in our family this year to make things a good bit easier for us. And uh, I'll let you know how it goes after Christmas. I don't want to tell you up front because it might flop. And um, Anyway, I can, I'll have time to make up a lie about it if it flops. <laughs> uh, people are decorating for Christmas. I've seen on Facebook so many people, most people by now already have the Christmas tree up. That all looks great. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be having Christmas parties and uh, celebrating the, the Christmas season with friends and family and all that good stuff. And Christmas is supposed to be the happiest time of the year. And for a lot of people, it is. But for a lot of people, it's not. For a lot of people, it's a miserable time of the year. I read a study recently from Harris Poll. They found that 45% of all Americans would rather skip Christmas than celebrate it. Now, by the way, and this is just a little extra added bonus here, 69% of all Americans would skip gift giving if they could. And so I'll bet you that for a lot of the people in that 45% bracket, the reason they'd like to skip Christmas is because of the pressure of buying gifts and everything that comes with that. But then there are other reasons that people don't like Christmas. For some people, Christmas reminds us of what we don't have or what we don't have anymore or, or who we don't have anymore. Sometimes Christmas can be painful for people because it, it reminds us of a loved one that we've lost or maybe a, a painful divorce. And so lots and lots of people struggle with Christmas. Maybe you struggle with Christmas. And so you need to figure out some sort of way to make it through Christmas. Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. Today's the first Sunday of Advent. I don't know if you know what Advent means or not, but Advent is just the announcement of a, a special person or a special event, uh, event. And so today is the celebration of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah coming into the world. And as we kick off this Advent season and this Advent series, we're going to talk about one word that I think is just critical in helping us have a different perspective on the holidays, but also on life, no matter what you're dealing with, no matter what you might be struggling with. And that one word is hope. Proverbs 13, 12 says that when hope is crushed, the heart is crushed. That just means we need hope, don't we? Don't you need hope? When people lose hope, they lose the, the will to keep going, to keep doing life. And for some, just to keep living. 
You ever heard of a man named Victor Frankel? Just a show of hands. All right, a couple of us. That's pretty good. Dr. Frankel was an Austrian-born Jewish psychologist. He was a survivor at Auschwitz, which was one of the extermination camps under Nazi-controlled Poland during World War II. After the uh, the war ended, he was then arrested. And why some of the prisoners survived, and I I don't just mean they, they were not executed. Lots of people died in concentration camps who were not executed. He died for different reasons. And he, he was interested in finding out why some survived and why others didn't. And his findings are in a best-selling book called Man's Search for Meaning. And listen to what he wrote about the power of hope. The prisoner who had lost his faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Hope in the future is a powerful force, but it can slip away from us. It can slip away when that spouse uh, looks you in the eye one night or one morning over breakfast before it's time to go to work and says, I don't love you anymore. I'm leaving. Hope can can dissipate really quickly when you have hopes and dreams for something that's really important to you and it just slips away. And it can certainly leave you at the holidays. Yesterday I went to a fast food restaurant to grab a little bit of lunch. I was sort of busy yesterday and so I I grabbed a side salad. And I I was driving through the parking lot. There was a a minivan, it was pulled straight into a slot, and the, a parking slot, and the, uh, the back door was open. And there was a mom and a dad standing at the, at the back of this minivan. You could tell they'd been Christmas shopping. And they were both changing this baby. I say baby, it was probably a toddler, I, I couldn't really tell. But that baby had pooped all over everything. I mean, it, it, I didn't want to, I couldn't help but to see. I mean, it was just everywhere. It was so bad, dad was there with her, you know, and it, it's everywhere. It was so bad. You, you want to pull up and try to encourage them, but there's no way you're going to. You know, you're not going to ride up into that. And, oh, it was terrible. Man, that can, uh, that can make your holiday cheer go away really quick. We're going to talk about hope today and, and how to have it. If you, if you already have it, how to maximize it and maybe even find it again. Now, I want you to understand that I'm not talking about the feeling of optimism. I'm not going to try to pump you up today and tell you that everything in your life is okay because the fact is for a lot of us right now, life is not okay Instead, we're going to talk about real hope, hope that lasts, hope that hangs on when you just don't feel like you can hang on anymore, hope, hope that holds your life together when everything seems like it's falling apart. And this lasting hope, just to give it away right up front, is available to everyone through the person of Jesus Christ. We're only going to look at one scripture passage today. It's Isaiah 9, 6. It's in your notes. It's going to be on the screens behind me. But before we read it, 
I want to just tell you a little bit about what's going on around this passage. You, you, you need to remember that whenever you're reading a scripture passage, it always has two meanings. One, it means something to the people who heard it for the very first time. And two, it means something to the people who are reading it at, at that time, 100 years ago, today, 100 years from now. It, it meant something to the original audience, but it means something to us. So let's understand a little bit about that original audience. The prophet Isaiah was a temple prophet, m- more than likely. He lives in Jerusalem. By this time in the life of Israel, and this is about the, somewhere early in the 8th century, about the mid-720s B.C., Uh, By this time in Israel's history, the kingdom was broken up into two kingdoms. There was Israel, which was the northern kingdom, and there's Judah, which was the southern kingdom. Assyria was the superpower of the world. Now, I want you to remember all this because this is going to be on the test. (laughs) Assyria was the superpower of the world, and they were doing what lots of kingdoms do. They were expanding, and they had made a land grab that included Israel, the northern kingdom. So now the people of Judah are anticipating with lots of gloom. They're anticipating that at any time Assyria is going to close in on them and capture them. And so they feel vulnerable. I don't know if you can feel it or not, but for them it was a very dark dark time. And they were desperate. They had terrible leaders. King Ahaz was just an ungodly king. And he was making bad decisions. The other leaders in Israel at the time, they were making bad decisions as well. And sort of in desperation, they were considering uh, some sort of peace treaty or Uh, maybe even joining the country of Egypt. Now think about that. The people of Israel, the people of God, had once been slaves in Egypt, and now they're considering a partnership, but but it's just something to try to get them through politically and militarily. But the prophet Isaiah, God's preacher, was against it, and he challenged the people, instead of making a deal with the devil— That would have been the way he saw it. Instead of making a deal with the devil, let's turn back to God. Let's let's turn back to following God the way we once did. Let's live as God's chosen people, and then he'll protect us. He'll preserve us. So again, it was against this dark backdrop of anxiety and despair that Isaiah preached a message of vision and hope for a brighter future. 700 years before Jesus was born. But this is what he had to say about Jesus, the coming Messiah. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I want you to listen to it once more. For unto us a child is born, 
To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Let let that sink in for just a minute. Remember again what's going on in Israel, Judah in particular. It's a dark, gloomy time. And God has an answer for them. Just like he has an answer for everything that scares us, for everything that worries us, for everything that causes us anxiety, for everything that's threatened us, for everything that has made us feel insecure. And that answer is a child. It really doesn't make sense. I mean, not if you're trying to imagine this from a worldly perspective. God, we have big problems here. We're living in darkness and despair. We're full of anxiety. We need some help. Send a big army. Send a big monster. Send someone to help us fight this. He sends him a child. See, the power of God is so great, so superior to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the Egyptians, the Nazis, and the Iranians, that God can defeat them by coming to this earth as a baby. God's answer for the historical bullies of this world is not to come as a bigger bully, but to come as a baby. And Isaiah uses four titles to describe the coming Messiah, Jesus. And so I want to talk about what those are. I want to talk about what those mean and what we should do about it, how we should respond. The first one is wonderful counselor. Say that with me, wonderful counselor. And we've heard that in songs like in Handel's Messiah, and so we just, we sing it or we say it and we, we even see it sometimes written. I saw it twice this week, probably just because I've been studying about it and reading about it. So it's sort of on my mind. So you see things when you're, when you're focused on them. And uh, yeah, I've seen it written on Christmas decorations, that sort of thing. Wonderful counsel. But what does that really mean? Well, the word wonderful in Hebrew means miraculous. It means amazing. And I know that we use those words so often, they're sort of emptied of their meaning, but it it means amazing. It means miraculous. Counselor is someone who gives advice, someone who offers ideas and strategy. So what Isaiah is saying about Jesus, the coming Messiah, is that he offers miraculous, amazing advice. He has the best ideas and the best strategies for life. It's like saying that there's no one else to go to that could give you better guidance than Jesus. I think about what that would have meant to the people in Judah. They have terrible leaders, ungodly leaders, horrible leaders, making making all the wrong moves. And here they are thinking about joining up with Egypt. Lord, have mercy. And so Isaiah is speaking to those leaders 
as he's, well, he's speaking to the people, but about those leaders. And he says, listen, one day we're going to have a leader who is a wonderful counselor. He'll know everything to do. He'll know exactly the strategy for us to take. But what does that mean for you and me? It means we should follow him. If you're taking notes, you ought to write that down. The way you and I respond to the wonderful counselor is we follow him. Instead of taking advice from the world, instead of listening to what is popular in the world, instead of following yourself, follow Jesus. Again, he has the best strategies and ideas for your life. You will go wrong following the rest of the world. And in fact, if you want to abandon average, if you want to improve your life infinitely just today, watch what your neighbors are doing and do exactly the opposite. And let Jesus lead your life. Follow him. Let him tell you how to to lead your life. Let him give you advice. Let him speak strategy into your life. We just finished up a series through the Sermon on the Mount. What you should do is you should go home today and start reading Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And start doing everything that Jesus says to do in those three chapters. That's where you should start Is your life in a mess? If your life is in a mess, I'll bet your life is right where you've led yourself. Or it's right where the wisdom of others has taken you. If you want to find hope, start listening to Jesus. Follow him. Let him lead you out of the mess. So wonderful counselor. And then Jesus is called Mighty God. Say mighty God. Sennacherib the second was the lead. Can you say Sennacherib? Just to say you've said it before. <laughs> Sennacherib the second was the leader of Assyria during this time. And He told the Assyrian people that they had to worship him as a God. He didn't claim to be the God because in his world, they didn't believe that there was just one God. He believed there were lots of gods. And in pagan worship and Assyrian worship, they would sacrifice bulls. That was their kind of their animal, their emblem. And so when you would walk into the the main entrance of the capital city of Assyria, there were two bulls out front. I mean, just enormously big. And the head on the bull had been replaced with 
the head of Sennacherib. He was saying, I am a God. So if you think about that, Isaiah is putting his thumb in Sennacherib's eye and saying, you may consider yourself a God. And he's saying to the people of Israel, this devil in Assyria claims that he is a God, but our leader who's coming, the Messiah, Jesus, is mighty God. He's greater than any leader, greater than any president or prime minister, king or queen. He is mighty God, the true God, the great God, the one God. And he's strong enough to defeat all of our enemies. That's what he wants the people to know. And so what does that mean for you and me? It means that we should lean on him. We should lean on him. One of my favorite passages of scripture is Psalm 23. And I love verse four where King David says, and yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not afraid. I fear no evil for you are with me, guarding me and guiding me all the way. What's cool about that is that David was a, He was a king, but he was a warrior king. David was infamous, infamous and famous for the people he had killed in battle. Of course, none more famous than Goliath. After David killed Goliath, Saul was still a king. David would be the second king. But the pretty girls in Jerusalem would sing songs about Saul and David. They would talk about Saul who's killed his hundreds, but David who's killed his thousands. So he had his own rod and his own staff. He had his own weapons to make it through things in life. And here he is saying, when I walk through the dark valleys of this world, I'm not afraid. Not because I have my own rod and my own staff. He says, Lord, I'm trusting in your rod and staff. I'm putting my trust in you to lead me through these dark times. I'm leaning on you to help me through whatever I'm going through, whatever has me afraid, whatever I'm dealing with. And we should do that too. We should lean on him. And then he's everlasting God or everlasting father. Is it God in your notes? I'm sorry, I sent that wrong, but it should be, it should be everlasting father. And let me just make sure I didn't change the scriptures. Okay. <laughs> That's the King Jimmy version. Everlasting God. Remember who we're talking about. We're talking about a king here. We're talking about King Jesus. In the Old Testament, it's pretty rare to refer to a king as father. It happens once or twice, but it's kind of rare. But when you're talking about a king, an earthly king, you would never talk about him as being everlasting, right? Because human beings are not everlasting. We don't live forever. So it's obvious that he's not talking about an earthly king. He's talking about the God king, Jesus king, King Jesus. 
So he's everlasting and he's father. Why does that matter? Because there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But here is referred to as everlasting father. The responsibility of a father is to lead his family. In olden days like this, a, a father would be one who led his family, his tribe, his people. And so he was responsible for the big decisions that they would make as a clan, as a tribe, as a people. And the thing about having a father lead his tribe is that he would lead them the right way. He's not going to give them bad advice. He's not going to tell them things that would hurt them. He's going to tell them things and, and lead them in ways that helps them. So what does that mean to you and me? It means that we can trust Jesus. We can trust him because he's not going to lead us to do things that would hurt us, to cause us pain. You have to trust him. And that can be so hard. Especially when you're going through a dark valley because you want God to just pluck you out of there, don't you? You ever been in a tough time? Struggling with something? I mean, something really big. You just want the Lord to change it right now. Sometimes he does. I've learned most times he doesn't. Sometimes you just want him to take the pain away. Sometimes you want him to just pull you out of trouble. Most of the time he doesn't do it like that. For, for David... He didn't pluck David out of the valley of the shadow of death. Instead, he led him through it and he guarded him at the same time. But what this means about Jesus is that we can trust him, even though we don't understand what he's doing or why he's led us to a place. And you just have to trust it. How many of you have a GPS? Show of hands. I mean, if you have a smartphone, you have a GPS, right? Do you use it? My, my dad is 75, and he drives me crazy with a GPS. Now, my dad, his name should be Magellan. I mean, he'll use a GPS, but he argues with it the whole time. And it, what he, he really likes to do is have a, an atlas or a road map. I mean, he'll, he'll double check behind the GPS with a Rand McNally map. And it, it drives me crazy because he just will not trust that thing. He, it, he was really bad a few years ago. He's getting somewhat better at it now. He has learned that the GPS most of the time will get him to the place he's wanting to go. And, and sometimes you just have to think about the Lord in the same way. You're going through some place and it's the valley of the shadow of death. It's dark and gloomy. It's a, it's a scary place. You think, Lord, this can't be the right direction. 
this can't be the way we're supposed to go. Maybe I need to punch in the destination I want to be in. Maybe I should reroute this thing. Well, you just have to trust the GPS knows where it's going. You have to trust the Lord that he knows what's best for you. That he's the one driving. He'll get you where you need to be. So trust him. And then finally, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. And we think about all sorts of things when we think of peace. Every believer should strive for peace. You know, we just looked at the Beatitudes a few months ago where Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. We should do all we can to be at peace with the people around us. But there's never gonna be peace on earth. Not, not in this lifetime, not in this world. Not, not in this day. I've sort of chuckled for years now with presidential administration after administration after administration. They all, I mean, I just, I remember going back to Carter. They all want peace in the Middle East. The problem is at the Dome of the Rock on what was once the Temple Mount, you have Ishmael's children, the Arabs, the Muslims, praying that God will kill Isaac, the Jews. The Jews are at the wailing wall, remnants of Solomon's original temple, and they're praying that God will do the same to Ishmael. When the two groups are praying that God will kill the other, that, that really dampens your opportunity for peace. We're never going to have peace on this earth as long as there are tyrants. You're not going to have peace in your family until your brother-in-law changes. Or you change him out. Or something. Or take him out. I have one I'd like to do that with. It's not peaceful today. It won't be peaceful on December 25th. It wasn't peaceful 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born. It wasn't peaceful 2,700 years ago when Isaiah gave this prophecy. So what in the world could God mean? King Jesus came so that we could have peace with God. You, you may not realize it, but if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, things are not okay with you and him. You're at war with him because of your sin. Jesus makes it possible for you to be forgiven of your sins 
reconciled to God and have peace with him. Whether you have peace in your family or not, whether there's peace in our community or not, whether there's peace in the world or not, you can have peace with God. So surrender to him. That means that you make the decision that you are no longer gonna lead your life. But Jesus is Lord. It means that you're accepting his dominion over your life. He's not a politician that'll come in and bargain for parts of your life. I just finished reading a book called The Gatekeepers. It's about all the chiefs of staff for every administration going back to Johnson. They tell their own stories. They talk about different things. One of my favorite stories is where James Baker um, talks about Ronald Reagan being the great negotiator. He would always remind James before he was going in to meet with Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House, his Democratic opposition. He would remind him, listen, there's 80% I want out of this deal, Jim. Here's what it is. I don't care about the other 20%. I'll come back for it later. But we've got to have a place to bargain. So I'll just take 80% of what I want. The Lord doesn't work that way. The Lord's not going to come in and negotiate for even a majority of your life. It's an all or nothing thing. It's an all in or all out. The way to have peace with him is to surrender your life to him. I'd like to give you that opportunity to do that right now. You would just bow your head and close your eyes. If you feel like life is ripped up, that you're being pulled in a million directions, if you feel like there is indeed a battle going on inside of you, my bet, my bet is that you're at war with God. And the way to end that, the way to have, the way to have peace with him is to trust him right now as Lord and Savior. If you would do that, say this prayer with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for this opportunity to have peace with you. Lord, right now, I trust my life to you. I admit to you that I'm a sinner, that I've lived my own way and not your way. And so right now, in the best way, I know how I give you my life. I surrender my life to you. And Lord, help me every day for the rest of my life understand what that surrender is like and help me to be surrendered every day. Thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me. Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. Those who agreed said, amen.